Welcome to another edition of Practitioner Radio, Pink Elephant's podcast for the IT management community. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whenever you're listening to this. This is Practitioner Radio from Pink Elephant. My name is George Spaulding. I'm the Executive VP. With me today, as always, is my boy, Troy Dumoulin. Troy, you're the Vice President of what this week? (laughs) Research and Development, and I hope it's not getting old, George. (laughs) No, that's good. No, no, that's great. Vice President of R&D, that's good. That's a lot of initials that works well for me. Joining Troy and I on the call today is J. Paul Reed, who has written a book called DevOps in Practice, which is really kind of cool. Paul, why don't you say a couple of words? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, yeah. My, so as you said, my name is uh, J. Paul Reed, and, and I uh, um, am a, a founding partner of a consulting company called Release Engineering Approaches. So I, uh, my background is actually release engineering that's sort of where I came to this space, but then at some point I think we started calling uh, release engineering DevOps. So I've been working in that space for the last uh, you know three or four years, um, and so I get to work with uh, all sorts of companies in all different kinds of industries on uh, the DevOps, as we sometimes jokingly call it, and and how to sort of roll it out and and work with them on the the hurdles and struggles that they have as they go on that journey. Cool. And you also have something to do with aviation. Are you a pilot, Paul? I, I am a pilot, um, private pilot. But yeah, I, I got my license in, wow, it's probably uh, almost 10 years ago now. People are wondering, so what's you did the it. connection here? What's the, you know. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm bleeding up to that, Troy. Give me a second. <laughs> So, um, because we're going to use a lot of aviation analogies, I think, today as we deal with uh, the world of release and maybe even the world of DevOps uh, in, and try and tie that into aviation and maybe the way that IT uh, needs to get going on its flight. So, tell us a little bit uh, about your book, The DevOps in Practice, and, uh, and some of the, I think you have a couple of really cool case studies in the book, so... Yeah, DevOps in Practice talks about the journey of Nordstrom and Texas.gov and sort of their experiences around uh, how they rolled uh, DevOps and and to uh, some extent Agile out within their organizations. Um, And and both of them were very candid in in the discussions that we had. It was was very... um, um, very interesting kind of to have all of these different perspectives from their their sort of DevOps journeys as we call them and and so uh, that's what uh, DevOps and practice is about um, and uh, I think it's it's resonated uh, with a lot of readers because I think you know a lot of times people think about DevOps and the you know the so-called DevOps unicorn so you know Google and Amazon and Netflix and Etsy and these kind of companies that you hear a lot about but um, you know if you're not if you're not shipping movies on the internet or you know um, doing massive cloud infrastructure like Amazon sometimes it's hard to see how these DevOps principles might apply to your organization so I think when people see uh, you know an or, uh, a company like Nordstrom um, and and the government you know Texas.gov uh, 
really getting traction on these principles, um, you know, that that's where they can kind of uh, sit up, take note and, and see what's relevant to their organization that maybe isn't, uh, you know, sort of one of these unicorns that we always hear about. I can't think of Texas.gov as a unicorn. It doesn't seem <laughs> it doesn't seem to actually match. I think it's funny. I think we actually called it. Uh, there's a section of the book called a unicorn in a cowboy hat. So, <laughs> trade to make the thing it work that's, there. The thing that's interesting is that every every organization, and we uh, we've had uh, some close dealings with uh, the folks from Prudential and mm -hmm. uh, in their DevOps journey as well. Uh, but everybody we talked to has seemed to be quite candid and uh, very realistic in their in their goals and what they were trying to achieve and, and whether and what they needed to do to make that happen and also um, what didn't work, uh, what they tried that failed and, and that we find that to be sometimes the best lessons of all. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think the I think the two most interesting bits of the case studies that I uh, that I've written up, and then of course the ones that that uh, you know just not the formal case studies, but whenever you talk to an organization, is the trials and tribulations, right? So the the hard and often vulnerable part that's hard to talk about, um, and you find that in the DevOps community a willingness to sort of share that. Um, but I also think what spurred their journey what sort of market forces, business forces, uh, and just technological forces forced, uh, you know, kind of was a forcing function for these organizations to really start their DevOps journey. That's where you, I think you find a lot of, uh, you know, interesting, uh, interesting narratives and, and discussions for, for uh, that would be useful to others. Well, it's not like IT departments everywhere haven't heard the word DevOps, and I think there's still a lot of confusion as to what it actually is and mm -hmm. what it's not. Yeah. That's definitely true. Uh, but I do think that the tipping point would be an interesting conversation because that's what you're describing really is what really said finally, okay, that's it. We've got to do it. There's no question. We're up for the pain. Right, right. Yeah. And and what I see actually uh, from a pattern perspective is uh, you t tend to see um, what I call sort of the crater event uh, when with these organizations. And, and there's a pattern uh, where... The, these organizations that, that are kind of doing DevOps, they, they had such a massive explosion in their world of some sort that uh, not looking at DevOps, uh, the cost of not looking at DevOps is higher uh, than, you know, anything else. So they start really looking at that and investing in that space. And that's thematic. It's actually somewhat surprising um, that, you know, you see these examples. And, th and that was... Um, the case with uh, the organizations, uh, you know, in the book, but also uh, other organizations that I work with. So I imagine these crater events that could either be an issue with speed, you know, failure to deliver, uh, or it could be an issue of uh, production readiness, uh, requirements not in place, or design failure. The thing doesn't arrive looking like it should. All these... Usually, yeah, usually they're, I, I find that they tend to be actually very tactical. And what I mean by that is they literally are like a smoking crater in the ground. And they are things like um, we went to deploy our website and because of massive technical debt over time and because of a certain aligned set of circumstances, um, we weren't able to deploy the website. And also, by the way, the website was down for 36 hours. Um, so this not not just we spent millions of dollars on an IT project and it didn't deliver the value. It really is like we were down and had uh, the board asking us 
what is going on, right? I mean, it, it is that sort of crystallizing an event. Um, and hope, you know, for some organizations, it's not quite that bad, but it usually is kind of this this uh, sort of tactical thing. You know, talking about aviation, the analogy you might think of there is it, it is a crash. Uh, it is it is a crash that makes uh, the entire organization sit up and take note, much in the way that a crash makes uh, the entire industry sit up and take note. How do we do things differently and avoid a future crash, basically? Mm-hmm. Well, that's why they call the FAA the Tombstone Agency, right? <laughs> um, so that Mike, um, so one of the things you talked about in the, in your introduction was you talked about the concept of release engineering i think was your word mm-hmm. um and different approaches to release that then you that became um a new term devops uh, as you were working on it tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about what release engineering and your different approaches are well so uh it's actually kind of funny that the name you know the name of my consulting firm release engineering approaches is actually a play on that aviation aspect um a, an approach procedure uh, is a defined procedure in aviation that brings aircraft from, uh, you know, wherever they're coming into, into the ground in low visibility conditions and often, you know, inclement weather conditions. So the the term approaches was was kind of a, a play on the the idea of the this these aviation concepts, but also a different approach to sort of release engineering. And uh, what you find with DevOps is is the uh, when organizations start their DevOps journey, a lot of times the first thing that uh, and again this goes back to that sort of uh, massive kind of event that breaks things where there's uh, uh, room to get all easy wins, easy initial wins often comes down to the um, excuse me <clears throat> uh, the deployment process and the release process. So uh, from a release engineering perspective, and for people that aren't familiar with the term, release engineering uh, actually comes from, it's a a, a discipline that's been around for as long as we've been releasing software. And it's this idea of, of, uh, it encompasses many things, but it was used to be the role that release engineers would take the software that the developers put together, and they would actually be responsible for putting it, you know, getting it on floppy disks and CDs. And then, of course, as we move to a more internet and, and uh, web-based world, that really uh, overlaps a lot with what operations teams do in the data center. And, uh, you know, they play that uh, sort of critical role. And even if you don't see, quote-unquote, release engineers playing that role anymore, you do see operations teams and DevOps teams, quote-unquote, doing release engineering. So that's really where where that came from. In terms of different approaches, I think uh, one of the things that I found early on, and I had made this analogy even before DevOps was a thing, was this idea that release engineers really uh, play can can play a role as air traffic controllers because they have a different view of sort of the field. If you think of um, developers as pilots, you know, landing their feature and releases taking off and, and that sort of metaphor. Uh, release engineers traditionally worked with QA and they worked with, uh, you know, even sometimes customer facing. They'd often work with product in weird kind of odd ways. You'd see them work with legal on uh, source code compliance and things like that. And then, then of course, they worked with developers and, and operations. Um, and so their viewpoint uh, was very akin to sort of air traffic controllers in a tower that have a, a very different view of the world than a developer a pilot might have out on the, the tarmac taxiing around to their gate or, or whatever. Um, 
and their roles were really different. So when this whole idea of DevOps came up, it really was, uh, you know, this this sort of epiphany for me. That's like, well, if you think of of operations people as uh, the air traffic controllers and developers as the pilots, there's a lot of really interesting parallels there. And then, of course, if you look at the number of daily operations in the United States alone, we're talking about uh, over 90,000 operations a day. Um, and so if you could imagine 90,000 deployments a day, right, if you make that leap, then uh, there's a lot of sort of uh, stuff to look at about how does the FAA do that safely uh, and reliably, or at least as reliably as the weather will allow, um, every day, day in and day out, uh, with such a, a low failure rate, uh, and are any of the things that they do applicable to sort of what we do in IT? So in that context, Paul, you and I have had this discussion where, you know, looking at it from an ITIL release and deployment perspective, uh, I think there's some definite correlation here as well. So if you kind of use your metaphor, uh, developer is kind of the pilot, the release engineer is kind of preparing this for uh, going into landing zone, and then you have air traffic control, let's call that the change management advisory board, that's basically the, you know, can we land these things, when do they land, in what sequence and order. Uh, this release engineer has a lot of similarities to me in the concept of release manager in an ITIL perspective, and that's where someone's looking to establish what are the production readiness criteria at different life cycle stages from concept to to land, and then making sure those are kind of vetted, done, and completed and packaged, if you will, and then deployment takes over, and then we're finally landing this thing. Yeah, yeah, and it, it, I, well, I would actually. It's it's kind of fun, you know, when we when we actually chatted at the the Pink Elephant conference about this. I always like to extend the 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 metaphor uh, and the analogy in, in fun new ways. And so the thing that you were talking about, I would really think of release engineers as sort of air traffic controllers. But uh, the the FAA has this concept of air traffic managers and air traffic management, and those are people that there's usually uh, you know somebody that plays that role at, at large facilities like SFO or LAX or or uh, JFK, but then there's also sort of this more centralized role that's actually down in, um, I believe it's in uh, near DC, and they play a national traffic management role. Um, and so when you talk about release manager and sort of the coordination of that and, and all of those things, there's an analogy there to somebody who, who isn't really focused on getting all of the stuff sequenced. Uh, and making sure they land safely, and then coming up with contingency plans if something happens, if they have a go around or whatever. Just like change but management. They, go ahead. Yeah. Exactly. Oh yeah, exactly. But they play the role of okay, now how do I manage that change process across possibly many different airports, right? Many different uh, portfolio projects. How do I make sure that they all sync up, and how do I make sure that that is most efficient? Um, so they'll play the role. You know, a lot of times people wonder why they're at an airport, it's sunny, and they can't take off. Uh, this happens a lot uh, to me uh, coming into San Francisco, which is known for its fog. And, uh, you know, I, I always kind of chuckle when I hear people complaining about this because uh, the reason they can't take off is because a flow manager has looked at, at what the flow looks like in the SFO. And the alternative would be us uh, circling in a hold in the central California Valley. And do you, I mean, what would you rather have, wait on the ground or be in a hold and potentially run out of fuel or at least have to divert to some other airport. Um, so there, you know, there's that analogy as well. And you, um, I was talking about this production criteria and how this mm -hmm. criteria kind of 
it's not just at the end stage, but you have different miles, milestone or gates, if you will, and each of these gates might have a set of criteria. And this would vary based on the risk and complexity of the release. And, and as I was kind of describing that, you said, well, that sounds like a minimum equipment list. Yes, yeah. So um, the whole process in terms of like launching an aircraft, there's, uh, I, I, I think a lot of people don't know this, there's actually legal responsibility between, for an airline, the pilot and the aircraft dispatcher. And so the, the pilot and the dispatcher work together to come up with the flight plan and the weather and, and the, the loading of the aircraft, the manifest and all that kind of stuff. But then also uh, the thing we were talking about is uh, you know, if, if uh, a plane lands and then in the process of doing the walk around and the pre-flight checks that they do, they find a piece of equipment um, that is that is inoperative or, or doesn't work. Um, there's actually a book uh, called The Minimum Equipment List that they can go to and they say, well, you know, if, you, if this piece of equipment isn't working, uh, is this other piece of equipment working or can you do this other thing? Or maybe they say, well, you can't. Uh, fly with these weather conditions if you don't have that piece of equipment, stuff like that. And so it really allows the process to be less driven by, uh, in, in pilots call it get their itis. And when you have get their itis, it can have a very uh, bad outcome. Uh, it, it really uh, makes the decision making around that uh, more standardized and more objective so that um, those decisions can be made in a calm uh, and and sort of orderly way in terms of like oh my god this project is overdue we have to do something sort of that way and it's predefined and it's shared across as you pointed out national uh, flying yes policy. yeah actually every every plane every model of plane and then every airline has this minimum equipment list and so there's there's a part of it that the manufacturer comes up with but then there's a part that the airline comes up with and and so uh, it's shared it, it really is they when there's a problem like that they'll get out the book and say it's very yes or no are we okay to fly with this with this particular uh, item inoperative or not so one more extension then George I'll, I'll stop talking here. So this is no, no, you're doing great. Don't I don't have to talk. You guys are doing great. <laughs> so I'm having fun listening. This actually. is great because it really kind of builds the metaphor. Uh, so in essence, release is different from deploy. Release is one of the things we get ready to do basically before we have to land. So you don't even get to take off in the premise of this minimum equipment list until you have these things. But kind of the way I always described it was you got all these stakeholders who have an opinion about what a good landing looks like. And so you mm -hmm. go around to them, you go to the development cadre, you go to the QA team, you go to the architects, the security professionals, your DR team, your operations support, et cetera. And you say, what's your minimum equipment list for this thing to land safely? And that list can look huge initially as you kind of collect all of this opinion. But when you look at it now from a model perspective, like a 777 is different than a little Cessna. So you're going to have a, a course, a completely different list of minimum requirements for a small risk-oriented thing versus a large, massive thing. And so now you've got to run a fit this into a right-size list for each of these models of release, if you will. Uh, so this is kind of fit-for-purpose minimum equipment list requirements so that you know when you can take off. So you're not in the air trying to say, okay, I've got to land this thing or, or you know, hell or hard water, I've got to get, put this thing on the ground. You don't get to take off unless you can show this is actually in place. Right, right. And and I think that idea, uh, one of the reasons I love this metaphor is this idea that um, there are certain rules that are sort of static and it doesn't matter if you're flying uh, a Cessna or uh, an A380, right? Um, th those rules exist throughout the entire national airspace system. 
But I think a lot of people don't know that um, the the vast majority of airports in the the um, United States are untowered uh, airports, and so small aircraft like Cessnas actually have to sequence themselves, and they're responsible for that. And of course, I didn't um, know this, and, and I'm glad I didn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and so uh, oh, come on, Troy, come on, take a chance once in a while. Yeah. So what's funny about that, though, is that when you're talking about those projects, uh, you know, things like if I declare uh, there, there's a couple of interesting examples. If there's inclement weather and there uh, you want to take off at an untowered airport. So there's no one there's no tower and there. there there's no one in a tower to talk to. You can still for a lot of the airports, get an instrument clearance from a facility, and usually it's a radar facility that's not on site, and take off in that inclement weather. And that still works, even though there's no power telling you to take off, right? Um, so that that part of the process can scale from a very small untired airport with small projects to something like SFO. Um, but the some of the like I said, some of these other rules, uh, you know, one of the ones that that we always talk about is like when I declare an emergency, what happens in the aircraft? Um, unfortunately, that's not something I've ever had to do, though I have had a couple of um, uh, flights that were interesting, shall we say. Um, but that process, again, same thing, whether whether it's a small Cessna or it's a big a, A380, and the sort of organizational response in terms of, of uh, air traffic controllers and what the system will provide, they are, talk about flying in the system, what the system will provide is relatively similar. And as kind of a, 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 an anecdote, I didn't declare an emergency, but uh, one time we had an urgent landing condition and they pushed uh, 737s and A320s out of the way uh, into Oakland, Oakland International Airport, and uh, that because they wanted to get me on the ground. So that kind of, uh, I think, organizational support, uh, Troy, this idea that you're talking about that there's different requirements and there's kind of a sliding scale of these things. But there's still this underlying, there's certain things you can always count on, which I think is actually very comforting. So it's pilot, very... your life is first and foremost. So that's the minimum requirement. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, absolutely. I've got a million airline stories, but I'm not going to share them here. <laughs> so, um, so we've talked for uh, certainly, well, easily for 10 years since uh, v 3 came out. Uh, we've talked about release management and, and what release management really meant. And um, you've actually come up with different roles than, than we normally use um, with basically what sounds like you've got this kind of overarching person who's looking at all releases, which we, I think, in our mind, uh, consider that change management uh, because it's all about deployment, when it's going to deploy, what resources are needed, things like that. But then there's the whole release engineer that you basically talked about, which I, I translated in my mind as getting a re the, the developer develops and then the release engineer gets it ready to deploy. And basically, if the developer needs to do something else, the release engineer tells them that. If the if some other part of operations needs to be brought into it, the release engineer does that. Am I interpreting that right? So I, I, here's the thing. I think traditionally you're interpreting it perfectly, but that role is changing. Release engineering as a discipline is changing, and the role that the release engineer plays is changing. I know Troy and I, we've talked at length about um, when you have sort of silos in an organization and the cost of handoffs and, and how it's really all about flow. I think where you see, and this was kind of the original idea behind the analogy, where you see this changing is if you really think of um, 
release engineers and operations people as air traffic controllers that are responsible for building and operating a continuous delivery pipeline and the infrastructure behind that. So they, they are responsible for the towers and uh, they actually call it uh, airway airway management. So that's the uh, the navigation beacons and, and the radio towers across the country that, that are needed to communicate. All of that uh, airway facilities is actually what they call it. And so all of those facilities are the, the responsibility of uh, sort of what you might broadly call the FA or the air traffic controllers, right? And I think where this is moving is you're seeing um, release engineers and operations teams, the, these QA, these support roles getting rolled up and, and really, uh, especially with continuous delivery pipelines, they are responsible for developing that. And then once that is developed, uh, and it sort of uh, allows for continuous flow of commits and code, that's where the developers flying their planes, and you might think of the planes as, as features when they land them, right? Um, and, and, and really, as a, as a pilot, when you're in the plane, I really don't care what's going on uh, on the airport surface as long as uh, the runway is clear when I am given landing clearance. That's what I care about, right? And so that frees up the developer, not really so much to have to care about what's on the ground or have to care that the navigation beacon is working out in some other state, right? That's the responsibility of, of the release engineers and the operations team and, and that supporting team. My goal is to get that plane landed safely. And so it creates this, the reason the metaphor I think is is so nice and also so powerful is it creates sort of an intuitive, I mean, most of us have flown so and, and we know what air traffic controllers do. So it, it creates kind of a nice understanding for framing that work. And, and um, so I think you're, the way that you described it was traditionally correct, but I think uh, in terms of breaking down the silos that we always talk about in DevOps, and, and Shura, you and I have talked a lot about flow, increasing flow. The way you do that is it's not so much that you've got one team responsible for part of that process, writing code, and then another team responsible for shipping it. It's the way you delineate those responsibilities in a slightly different way. Does that make sense? Well, the way I, I explained it. it. <laughs> I, I think you, you and I talked about where the developer takes on some of the release engineering activity. That would work for me as long as we have this central governance function uh, you described yeah. that describes what the minimum equipment list should be by model and gives policy and checklists that basically can be uh, baked in to your sprints, yeah. if you will. And so that also includes, and this is key for me, not just feature or functional requirements, but non-functional. Exactly. Uh, and that's where we get the support requirements. This is the DevOps premise of bringing operations forward. What they really mean yep. is let's consider other things other than feature function. What's the DR requirement? What's the security requirement? What's the architectural requirement? And let's build those in as non-functional warranty aspects of our release right. so that the minimum equipment list is, only, is not only focused on feature. And that's where I think we have been challenged in the past because if you basically ask the developer to be also the release engineer, the person determining what quality looks like, they'll only think of it from the point of view of the user stories, which are going to be focused on feature, not non-functional. But right. if you you know if you land that plane and someone goes to jail or you you know or you use, lose your life because of a mid-air collision, you're still not going to be thankful that the thing got on the ground. Right, right. And actually, well, you brought and up then, and, and then the other thing is that we you know we've always been we've been doing this for decades, and then we go back after the fact and do a. Uh, .1.2.3 release that fills in what you're now calling the minimum equipment list, which is basically the minimum amount of stuff that would be considered a successful release. 
Right, right. There's that weird distinction that uh, is, it, it's interesting that that's the way we've always done it, but it, it, when you kind of describe it that way, it doesn't feel natural, does well, it? It's a little bit different, though, in my mind, because, you know, DevOps talks about minimum viable product, or Agile does, but the reality is that's still a bit different than I'm describing. The minimum viable product says, here's the minimum thing that I can accept as Rev1, but that minimum thing that I can accept at Rev1 needs to also include both functional requirements, but also the non-functional uh, elements, which are not necessarily in the top of mind of a developer. So that minimum uh, acceptable or criteria has to include both warranty and utility. Yeah, the way I would describe it, I actually think uh, a good analogy there is, is listen, your, your Cessna can be a Cessna 172 or it can be a Cessna 310, but it can't take off without landing gear. <laughs> it doesn't matter the size, both of those things need to have landing gear. You mentioned one thing, Troy, that, that uh, I, where this analogy actually really started, it was the genesis of this analogy, is, and it's this idea of checklists. And, and those, uh, you know, check, the Checklist Manifesto, if people are familiar with that book, it's become a big thing in operations. Um, but, but that's actually something I do uh, work with uh, a lot of clients on is, is their checklists and how they can really uh, use that to sort of drive uh, their things. And that's a huge part of this, A, this analogy, but be sort of, I think, um, what is something uh, that can really be helpful in a, a concrete way because a checklist is a thing you can hold in your hand. Well, and it's, it's one of the things that we talk about in our lean uh, IT class, when, which is there's a Japanese term called pokioke, and that's basically error proofing. Mm -hmm. And what the checklist does, in, especially in aviation, is where commercial pilots, for instance, will sit there and go through the checklist with each other every single flight mm -hmm. even if this is the 10,000th time that they have flown this airplane and this route it doesn't mm -hmm. matter yep they'll go through the checklist every single time yeah and there's a there's a big human factors aspect to the way that that you execute those checklists and that's one of the things i think i see this a lot where the checklist exists but the way that it's used you're not actually getting the benefit uh, of having a checklist I think it's important to point out we've been focusing on the release side, which is before the move to production or at, to the point of, of landing. There's also the deployment phase, which we haven't even talked about, and that's where we're actually you know, pushing it out, and that's the continuous deployment perspective mm -hmm. um, of DevOps, which is different, again, than the discussion we're having, which is the, the pre-deployment discussion of release. Well, you've got about two minutes to talk about it, Troy. Well, Now's your shot. I just want to say we may have another show on that part of it, but I'll change our metaphor a little bit. Uh, bringing in a big ship into a port always requires a pilot. Uh, so basically, and this is a naval pilot in this case, where the person will basically, once that ship is ready and it's on the you know outskirts of the port, it's a tricky business coming in, <laughs> all the shoals and et cetera. So you send out a, a pilot and they basically help you navigate in. Uh, and that's the deployment. So release is the, you know, the development, the packaging, the requirements of the minimum equipment list. Air traffic control says we're clear to land and now I've got to actually land this puppy. That's deployment. That's where we're pushing into the production or pulling into production uh, the packaging that's been developed. And the pilot brings her home. You know, Sorry, that's going to be your closing statement. And thank you very much. Paul, you got about a minute or two to wrap this up. All I was going to say, Troy, I think it was very interesting that you um, 
the way you put it, you, you brought in a totally different realm. Uh, you were talking about uh, maritime shipping. And all I would say is that when I th- one of the things I think that's most important about analogies like this, it's, it's the recognition that um, there are other industries, aviation, transportation, maritime shipping, nuclear power plants. If you talk about, uh, if you look at uh, the operate, the knock of, a, of any large enterprise, it looks not unlike a chemical plant or a nuclear plant. These industries have been wrestling with these sorts of problems with accidents that um, you know have real serious consequences for decades. And I think uh, one of the things that this is anal- this analogy is an example of is just that we look at those other industries, learn from their lessons that were often very hard lessons to learn, very costly lessons, and then see how that applies to to the work that we do, the operations, DevOps, IT work that we do. I think there's a lot there. And um, so that's why I love this analogy. That's why I love other analogies, other things that, that people bring in that are kind of more industrial, real world, because uh, there's just so much knowledge there that I think we can leverage in the in the um, next few years as we roll out these kind of DevOps and lean concepts, but also do it in a way where we we sort of pay attention to those those historical lessons. Hey, thank you very much, Paul. Um, all right, so that does it. We're, we're out of time on Practitioner Radio 68. And um, uh, thank you very much to our special guest, J. Paul Reed. Thank you. Who is the author of DevOps in Practice. Uh, where can I get that book, Paul? Um, you, it is actually uh, downloadable. It's it's from, uh, you can get it on O'Reilly's site. Uh, and you can hit jpaulreed.com slash DevOps dash in dash practice that will take you to the download page i'll put it in the show notes awesome perfect thank you very much it'll be in the show notes thank you very much thanks j paul reed and thanks as always to my compadre my partner in crime (laughs) the man who provides the smart stuff to this little endeavor we have troy de thank you all for listening we'll see you on the next one bye-bye